Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hi, and welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. This episode, we're going to keep talking about genome assembly, but we're going to talk about the post-processing steps you might apply to make the most of your genome assembly. So these are the different approaches that we used in the past, such as genome scaffolding or merging assemblies or other post-processing tools like polishing. And then we'll talk about some of the QC and visualization tools you will use to assess your final genome and make sure that everything is okay. So this is digging back into old classics like N50 and some new ones such as SOCRU, which is looking at uh, genomic rearrangements. So let's get right into it now. When you get your data, you process it, you do your assembly. Then once you have your assembly, we should talk about what steps you take. You know, what, what is your first step, Nabil? When the assembly's done? Yeah, to make it better. To make it better. Well, they're perfect when they come out, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dep- depends what aspect we're improving. Uh, one thing to always check, I mean, a, a bog standard thing as a sanity check is always just to map your reads you put in against the assembly you created and just make sure that that's sane. And there's a couple of different tools for that. I remember one, it's called Reaper, I think, which is from the Sanger, which is, but that was years ago. I don't know if it's still used. And, uh, so that's developed by Martin Hunt. Yeah, I think so. He yeah. did Ariba and IVA. Yeah. And what you're looking for there is you're just hoping that your reads are mapping within your context correctly and they're not suddenly jumping out to somewhere else. So you have suddenly got massive indels or massive amounts of SNPs within your reads because it's the same data you put in it should for that output so there should be very very little difference and very few anomalies if there are issue if there are this sort of issues with with this generally I found this is down to problems with scaffolding so so these days if you work with the genome assembler this sort of step is all scooped together in one go but it didn't always used to be this way what the in de novo genome assembly there's sort of two stages the first step is to generate context contiguous sequences so this is where you have reads joined together because of the, because they're overlapping on some degree differs how how you define the overlapping depends on the assembler then the second stage is to take other information which is normally the paired in information or mate pair information or even physical like opgen op or the other stuff to sort of then take those contiguous sequences and stitch them together now there used to be different tools to do this and some used to be very good very good at it and better than what came out of the box with your uh what came with the assembler so the things like mirror or s spades were some of the really were some of the tools used for that and image two oh yeah that, that uh, is for gap filling gap filling 
Yeah, which is quite a nice concept where you have a scaffold and then you want to fill in bits in the middle with maybe possibly pretty weak data. Yeah, so the so the you don't see this very much anymore. So the thing with the scaffolds was because you had made pair information, you had paired in information, you knew the two reads were physically linked together, but you hadn't sequenced that chunk in the middle. So you just have the contigs next to each other with a certain amount of placeholder characters, this ends. And so the gap filling was then to go back to the reads and try to address that problem. Yeah, you might have an overhanging read. Maybe one of the pairs is a long insert size library and you want to fill in a little bit further along and that can help you. You know, once you know approximately, say there's a gap of a thousand, you can start filling that in. But I think image and uh, those tools are actually all wrapped up in Paget, which is from the Sanger Institute from Thomas Otto. And that, that's like a suite of different programs. One is Abacus for uh, putting together contigs against a reference uh, genome. Oh, I've used that one. There's iCorn, which is for basically you map your reads back, as you said, it, you call SNPs, and then you keep fixing the reference until you have no more SNPs. So uh, polishing, basically. And then RAT for transferring annotation from one reference to another. Although the original name for Paget was uh, Gobsmacked. <laughs> However... Our, our IT uh, people, thank God, they said, no, we're absolutely not having that on our website. <laughs> you must change the name. So then it turned into Paget. So what about you, Lee? What, what have you been doing? Post, any post-processing of your data? Yeah, I used to... Actually, you covered a lot of what I used to do. I used to, I used to do image two a lot because I was a little bit lazier and I wanted to do scaffolding and gap filling at the same time. <laughs> and... I just thought, why why not? Just do that. And um, Image 2 was pretty great. And I got a little bit, um, I actually came across Paget in grad school, or maybe a little bit after, I can't remember now. Um, so thank you. And um, <laughs> thank you to all you guys over at Sanger. And I used that a little bit to refine my genomes after that. That was, that was kind of my process. I don't know. I think I think if I were in the business of trying to make sure my genome were like absolutely complete, then then I probably would have gone further, but I tried to simplify my life then and there there were a ton of things out there. Do you guys do any polishing at all? For polishing I actually created a a wrapper script around Pylon. Pylon's kind of like our go to and um, the community kind of says I've heard back and forth, but I think pretty much everyone says use Pylon four times. It feels kind of magical. So I, I I made a wrapper around that to just run it four times and make sure there are no new differences or not too many new differences. I suppose it can reinforce errors as well. Yes. So I have no idea how to get past that. Like, I know that I've been... At that point when I used Pylon a few times, I know I've been careful enough and then I try not to overthink it, but... I know that there's like always something more I can do and probably some mistakes that I've made along the way. So you're right. Um, I just don't know what else to do after a pylon. Yeah, I don't think there's any clear answer because some people use like multiple different polishers and then kind of combine them in different ways. And is it really helping after the first few iterations? I don't know. Has anyone used nanopolish from uh, Jared Simpson? Yeah, I like nanopolish a lot. So I, I did use that one a few times. I've handed over a lot of my work on nano on nanopore stuff over to my colleague Curtis Capsack. But up until then, I think still we're, we've been using nanopolish and it's really good because it 
it tries to polish in what is it called? Not a base space, but in is it like in slow squiggle space? space? Squiggle, squiggle space. space thank you. Squiggle space. Sure, squiggle. Why not? <laughs> um, so I, th I think it's a smart idea to to try to polish in that space because it's kind of the raw data and it seems to come out pretty well. Yeah, that that has that tool has developed quite uh, substantially over the past while. You know, it used to take like four thousand hours to polish one E. coli and. They've continuously just uh, worked on the method and they've gotten it down to just a handful of errors now. So it's it's quite good software engineering there. So, if, yeah, just a related thing on the polishing. One one way of getting of make of post processing is definitely to use sequence of other information other than what you use for the assembly. So cross checking it. So taking so I mean the obvious case these days is to have your nanobot data and then and then use Illumina on top of that. However you process, uh, however you integrate that in the many different ways, but but doing that is definitely one way to go. But this is a very old idea. We've been doing it for the you know the good old days of pyro sequencing in Illumina or even solid. Remember remember that. Remember having to do that because solid used to be solid with its color space, which no one could ever figure out how it worked was the highest was you know the highest quality base by base but the ba but the reads were only 30 base bits i'm sorry but solid is dead <laughs> solid is very very dead it's solid. um <laughs> but that was that was a that was a definite strategy was was to have high was hybrid assemblies and mixed mixed different data sets or even going back with sanger with capillary sequencing which still is alive <laughs> barely barely <laughs> So guys, uh, once you have your assembly, what do you do to check the quality of it? In our lab, um, we use a couple of different things. A lot of us have switched over to using Quast from uh, the same lab that made Spades, and they they basically um, they basically have this really nice uh, interface or command line interface also just to just get a nice table of all of your standard metrics and even some new ones that they introduced. I think they've even added a a web portal as well I think I saw that the other day so you can drag and drop your faster file and it'll spit it all out you don't have to even install anything um, before I started using Quast though I I start I created this script um, called run assembly metrics <laughs> uh, again great name I'm sure I think we've all made I think everyone, like has, yeah, everyone has one of those <laughs> so this is um, another yes we use Quast in our lab a lot but a lot of us are also using RunAssembly metrics, and it just provides a tab-delimited table on very standard metrics. It's it's kind of a a very um, straightforward, not getting into the details kind of method. So it tells you just like what your N50 is, what your longest contig is, and so forth, and then it's done. But that's in contrast to Quast, which you can like really dive into the data and really understand your data really well. I know, uh, I suppose another script like that from, again, Sanger from Martin Hunt is assembly stats. And it's just a very, very quick way of getting an idea of what's in your assembly. What's the N50? Um, what's the largest contact? That kind of thing. And it's written, I think, in C++. So it just runs in, in seconds. Um, but can I just get your uh, opinions on the what, what's the best metric for assemblies? Is it N50, L50? God only knows, 50. Yeah, why is it always 50? Why not in... in the, there was a good span of N75 and... 
There's N90. N90. (laughs) Any way of slicing it. Does someone want to act? Who wants to have a go of explaining what N50 actually is? Over to you, Lee. Oh, I've done this. I've done this so many times. I'll I'll see if I can do this. Okay. We once had like a discussion in our lab in grad school on how to simplify N50 to like one sentence. And I think we got it down to two back then. And that was like a full day discussion. N50 is the contig length of the contig in the middle when you sort your contigs by size. Did I get it? Sure. I mean, yes, that is literally what that number is. So it's, uh, yeah, so 50% of your contigs are larger than this number. Oh, that's really good. Darn, darn it. <laughs> darn it, <Nabil. laughs> So it's, I'm just drawing out the definition now. So what you do is you sort all your contigs by length, right? And then what you do is you figure out what the total length of all of those are combined together. You take that number, divide it by two, and you look for the contig that um, overlaps that that position. I made it more confusing now, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Damn it. But Damn it. I, I think an important point here is that no one metric can fully capture how good or bad your assembly is. No, because, I mean, in 50... Oh, man, this this was just... This was this was uh, just um, lowball questions you'd throw at any PhD student when I was growing up. Oh, N fifty, yeah, but and N fifty isn't perfect. Why you know why are you using this metric? And yeah, because you can inflate your contigs. You can inflate the N fifty size because if you just start mashing contigs together, like uh, there's, I think my favorite one is um, how to close genomes on Torsten Seaman's blog from ages ago, where he just grab he just. He just takes uh, an assembly, grabs out all of the headers, and then just says, it's closed now. It's, it's done. And like the N50 would be the length of the chromosome then. But that has happened in real life. Yeah, no, that's happened in real life. <laughs> For medically important genomes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we won't name names. Nope. <laughs> but yeah, if you've done some, some shady business or by accident, even by accident, you can inflate the N50 by just being very aggressive with your, with your scaffolding. So one thing I always like to do is after I've mapped my genome, I map my reads to the assembly. I'll always try and do a bin assembly then, you know, see what's left over. Why hasn't that actually assembled? Because sometimes you can find interesting stuff. Most of the times, you know, it's just random, you know, low level, uh, say, contamination. Yeah, in terms of, I think the first thing I always do is run Kraken on the contigs or centrifuge, whatever, it doesn't matter. Some taxonomic classification of the contigs, though. So that's s- stupid fast to do. And you're just, again, but it's the same sort of thing. You're looking for weird, weird stuff. If you get, if you've done a salmonella and you've got contigs that matching a Klebsiella, you've got, you've got problems. Uh, well, or maybe you've got, plasmid. Maybe plasmid. You've got prob- you've, either you've got problems or you've got a nature paper. <laughs> so, that's probably the one uh, I lean on a lot. The second thing I'd probably go for is looking for the number of... So you assume that for that given bacteria, there are going to be genes there that are single copy. And so there should be only one copy of those in your assembly. If you have more than one, you have a problem. So and like MLST genes? MLST, there should only be those seven. Those seven, there should only be one copy of those. And uh, the other tools that do this, like Busco, which have their own set of uh, own set of markers that they're looking for. Um, th- but this principle is the same. You basically make sure that there's only one 
copy of things that they should don't yeah one copy of the things that should be like that i find uh check m to quite useful have any of you guys used that uh, so that's about genome completeness so that's a similar question yeah uh, yeah so it's quite useful particularly for metagenomics but you can use it on isolates as well to get the completeness of the genome an estimate of the completeness of the genome and that is you know do you have all the the usual suspects of genes there and if you don't well then there's probably a problem yeah i mean you you need at least i think at least 50 ribosomal encoding genes ah. i mean you you can't really <laughs> you can't really shrug that off oh so is it checking for all the ribosomal genes and other uh, i think genes? for check m it varies what it uses okay i mean some of these tools, like like Busco as well, like they might, but they have their own panels. They have their own, um, and it, it depends on on the on the on the organism. By this point, I might thumb through the N50. Like the N50 is actually quite low down on my list these days to check. Well, particularly now with Nanopore and we get you know full chromosomes, I you know without even thinking. So I find uh, a program that I've written recently called Soccer to be quite useful if you have a full chromosome. And that will look at the order and orientation of the ribosomal operons, so like 16S uh, and such like. And it will work out, do you have a pattern that is biologically legal or do you have a, a pattern that's well known? And so at a glance you can see, okay, here I've got a salmonella. Normally it has seven uh, ribosomal operons, but my assembly only has one. Okay, something's gone wrong there. Or it's got 15 you know, it's quite easy to see. Or if the ribosomal operons are in a biologically improbable order, so they're reversed, so, um, you know, you can't go from the origin to the uh, terminus legally. Um, so it's quite nice for that. So I'd recommend always running Sokru over a fully complete genome if you have one of bacteria. Yeah, and again, following from, from that, total assembly length actually tends to be a bigger one for me these days over n50 because and it's so many people miss this you know they say oh i've got a salmonella gene like that's six meg that's six megabases long that is impossible that's not how this works and a lot of people miss 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 that simple check but uh or it's too small you know like three meg three meg salmonella and have you seen the extremes in RefSeq? you know you get 150 kilobase e coli and you have a 10 meg E. coli. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've never seen it in the wild, but I, I can imagine that that's happened. Often, I mean, I'm assuming it's someone who's done something really strange and just put it in there as a genome. We've had a couple of, like, Salmonella, for example, that have had, like, some huge plasmids, and maybe it is 5.5 or 6 megs. But something like 10 megs I would be very, very scared of. I would not use that. I'm keen to see what a six meg salmonella looks like. I think uh, one of the biggest, was it the biggest? The biggest salmonella serovar, the genome, I think is Veltafraden. It's probably the largest one. Oh, I, I assembled that. Yeah, I think that's probably the largest one. I wrote a really nice paper on that. It's a, a nice serovar of salmonella. Check it out. I have a question about Sakru since you brought it up earlier. All right, so is it, do you have like a database of what, kind of uh, ribosomal sequence types there are out there and, and it's described against it? So what it does is it uses Barnap to identify the ribosomal operons 
and then it looks for the fragments in between the operons and there's a database uh, like a standard reference with a conserved region from the bits in the middle between the operons and then it just kind of looks that up and it produces a pattern so it knows okay this large fragment is maybe fragment one and it can tell if it's in a reverse orientation or whereabouts it is in the in the genome and so then you have a database for every species every pathogen with all the different identified patterns it looks up to see are they biologically legal or not and then it'll, it'll look at your um, genome your chromosome and produce a pattern and say okay this is already known and seen it's probably okay or this is biologically legal but it's a novel pattern so you know maybe you want to publish that or this is just something crazy so it's probably a misassembly so from the novel ones does it write the paper for you <laughs> uh sure yeah if i'm an author <laughs> very cool i have to use that some more um and uh, it supports 433 different genomes or sorry species so far wow all right that has to be a really good qc check i'm gonna put that on my pipeline Thanks for making that. I don't know if anyone cares about it that much, but I will point out that these metrics that we're talking about in terms of N50 genome length and so on. So people always say that Shigella is basically an E. coli. Yeah, with a plasmid. Which is true, but the N54 Shigella is much, much, much lower than what you'd expect for E. coli. It can be as low as like 30,000, 40,000, like really poor. And you might expect about 120, 150 for an E. coli. You mean in terms of a de novo assembly from short reads? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that because there's more IS elements yeah, or something? Or it's because, yeah, it's because, yeah, exactly. It's because of the amount of IS elements in it. And so the your genome assemblies for Shigella are much more fragmented than what you'd expect. I don't know. I think the general point there is that you just have to, you have to, you have to know your bug a little bit. And get a feel, and I think that's part of what we were talking about with with total assembly length and chromosome size and so on. That, yeah, once you get an idea of what those ranges are, you can sort of fine tune these metrics. But it does vary from bug to bug. So, you know, sometimes Salmonella are six meg, and sometimes N50s can be lower as thirty thousand, and that is as good as it's going to get. So, uh, so PulseNet and Genome Tracker both put out actually some ranges on their bugs on what um, their partner labs should be looking for. And I don't think it's exactly published in peer review, although it might be in the upcoming year. But this is uh, something that we distribute out to our labs and and maybe we have it online somewhere. And if not, I should I, could, I should see about that. I think for Entrobase, we've listed the average values as well. So if you're interested in Salmonella, E. coli, Yersinia, Clostridioides, like those numbers are up as well on the on the Entrobase documentation. And I do know people have looked those numbers up and used that for their own pipelines as as thresholds. And come back to me saying, like, yeah, they're they're good. How do you guys eyeball your assemblies? Well, we have to start at the beginning with concert, right, Lee? I think back in the day, um, you would email who was it, Phil Green? And he would send you back an email with a a gzip file with Fred Frapp and Consed. <laughs> and um, and that was wonderful. I mean, you could, back in the day when everything was command line for genomics, you had like this really nice GUI tool 
uh, for visualizing where your reads map to. And that was just incredible to me. And it's got one of the, the best features that I haven't seen very much of since is when it gives you the pileup for all of the reads on the right column or on the left column, it actually tell, it gives you a hint of where the next read is or where the mate is. And I haven't seen that in many, t it's actually quite difficult to get that information at a glance. Or no, it would tell you what the, what the next contact was for the mate, the, where, which contact the mate was on. So you could see at a glance on the pileup, oh, okay, everything's pointing to the, this guy. Like, okay, that's fine. Or you go to and you go, oh, wait, there's a subsample that pointing somewhere completely different. And I should look into that. Something, something's gone wrong. So that was, I, that was a really nice feature. And hopefully someone integrates that into a new, more modern tool. I totally agree. And did you guys ever use Hawkeye from the Amos package? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I used to, I used to have it on my Mac when I had a Mac. It was forced on me. Who forced that on you? When you're just starting out, you just get whatever equipment you get. But yeah, that was always installed. It had, the, it had a really cool icon. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I never used this other classical one, but like, did you guys use Gap four five? Uh, yeah, I. Use GAP5 for fixing assemblies. It's really, really powerful, like insanely powerful. And you can load up an assembly, do some magical reads. It'll find, you know, where different reads are and it'll extend things. Like it, it's just phenomenal, but it is kind of difficult to use. So you need to have someone, I suppose, teach you all the ins and outs. But it is, if you're one of these old school genome finishers, this was like the absolute tool you needed. Um, but what I really use more on a day-to-day -day basis is Artemis from uh, Tim Carver. He used to be in, in Sanger, and that, that's really good for bacteria. It's very good for, you know, piling things up, having a look at them, looking at annotation tracks on top of that. And uh, yeah, you can spot a lot of errors there. So things like where are the mate pairs, how far away are they, is this distribution of, of insert sizes quite crazy for this area? What's GC content? That kind of thing. Yeah, I think for, for me, I used to, like, Artemis is definitely the the mother of all genome viewers, I'd say. That's standard issue, like any student, you have to get on top of Artemis. There are so many features. It's one, one pro tip before I forget. If you're zooming in and out a lot, turn off stop codons it will save you a lot of render time <laughs> and incredible yeah and turn them off for when you draw figures because those little black lines look like look terrible in a screenshot actually uh here recently we had to look at uh, multiple different files simultaneously so the solution was actually to get one of these 100 inch uh, tv screens you know <laughs> that you use in, in presentation rooms and uh, just look at it on that because it was easier than trying to look at it on a, a normal screen. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a, there, but there's a lot of stuff in Artemis. Like, I mean, I think, I think Sanger used to have a two, one day or two, like a, a solid workshop of how to, how to use it. And um, I never got it to work, but you can hook it up to some server to do all of the blasts. Like you can launch blast alignments to NR and all of that from, from it, but I never managed to get it to hook, uh, work. Yeah, and I suppose the most powerful part of it was being able to do live uh, annotation on a shared server, something called Chado. So you could have a lot of genome annotators then, you know, saying, okay, this this gene does blah, 
and you could all be editing and making changes simultaneously stored in the database. You can dump it out into whatever format you need, but uh, that's quite useful. Yeah, but who annotates genomes anymore? We just trust what Procket tells us, right? Oh, yeah, it's all right, yeah, all the time. <laughs> all hail the Toastyverse. Yeah, so, uh, so Chato, um was part of, is part of Gmod, so maybe Gmod also has a genome viewer. I just don't know right now. I uh, think uh, Web Apollo. Oh, Web Apollo, right, yeah. So there's probably, I wonder if Apollo can also do pileup or something, but I've never tried that. If anyone at home wants to tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 ton. I mean, we shouldn't... Oh, there's so many viewers out there. There's IGV. There's uh, JBrowse. The the new one, new kid on... Oh, it's not that new now. There's like BioDalians. There's, there's a whole bunch of these viewers out there. And they've all got their pluses and minuses. I think when I started out, Artemis was the go-to, but... Hawkeye was actually better for memory usage, so you could shove more into it, and that was that was like a plus, being able to do that. Then IGV is really good with its with in terms of showing tons and tons of tracks on on the interface, because like, I think it's just drag and drop all the files. It's pretty much you just point to whatever files you want and just loads all the tracks in. So you could show the snips, you could show the annotation, you could show this the uh, the presence absence of this in one context and then with another, and you could see all of that racked up. So that was really handy. Um, in terms of vision, but there's also uh, look at, we mentioned concept, but then there are more modern implementations that have a similar thing of looking at not just the assembly, like the chromosome, but also the underlying reads as well. So things like tablet was one we used a fair bit back in the day. And then there's the one from Ryan Wick, Bandage. Oh yeah, that's, that's really cool. That's really cool. That's a bit different. That's showing the assembly graph. So it's showing the link of the uh, context sequences and what they what they link up to, as far as the assembly graph is concerned. So that's really handy, especially for long reads if you're trying to see why it didn't circularize. Yeah, and I think oh I can't remember. Oh, and of course there's things like pile up, like there's this Sam tools viewers. Just when you when you've remapped your reads back onto your assembly, you, you can do that, and that's in the brow on the shell. You can look at things that way. Yeah. Do you guys use um, Sam Tools TV? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, do you want to explain what TView is for the viewers at home, listeners at home? It's just um, it's an ASCII representation of your assembly on the top line, and then all of your reads piled up on the subsequent lines, and you can use your left and right and up and down arrow keys to navigate around. It's really, the controls are extremely simplified. The view is extremely simplified, but the advantage, the advantage is that it's on any computer out there. That's, that's huge. You can go on any computer that has SAM tools and look at that. All right, wow, I think we've touched on so many different subjects in terms of the post-processing, how to assess assembly quality, and we've managed to pick up a lot of t tips and tricks along the way. There are plenty of things I didn't know about, plenty of history. And I hope everyone out there also learned a lot, as I did. And yeah, we'll see you next on the next episode of the MicroBinfi podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. 
This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.